All right. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Vikingology podcast. The art and science of the Viking age. Yay, we got it right. <laughs> <laughs> we still we haven't seen each other for a while. The last time was when we talked to Scottish archaeologist Tom Horn. And that was back in, like I think, the end of October. So how are you doing? Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm I'm well. It's Christmas. I love Christmas. Oh, yeah. It's a good time too. of year. Well, yeah, actually, when we were in Denmark and our guest, uh, Soren Sinbeck, is, is in Denmark now, um, we went to uh, an international Christmas tree growers trade show. Um, and because uh, that's my husband, we have a, a business where we grow Christmas trees and the Danes do a lot in Christmas trees over there. So, yeah, we like Christmas in our house, too. And I have this a, is a fun time of this Go is ahead. a fun time of year because uh, the. Uh, on the online the internet forums start get getting flooded by the way this is partly my fault because i i run the page viking memes that started this whole thing uh 10 years ago and so now it's christmas is a viking holiday santa <laughs> is odin in disguise no. and all of that fun stuff which is you know of course dubious historically at best uh yeah. total total but it's fun because then you get to just get a rise out of people what do you mean christmas is like anyway it's great <laughs> yeah, well, that'll get that. That'll be another thing I want to ask you about, Soren. This, you know, all of these myriad ways that the Vikings get interpreted and reinterpreted in, in the world—it's pretty insane. And you've written about that. So, um, with that, let me we'll do the official inter introduction. So, welcome, Sorensen Beck, to Vikingology Podcast. Thank you so much for being willing to share some time with us today. And. Yeah, and so you are an archaeologist and professor at Aarhus University, as we were just saying, the, what, the second largest city in Denmark, uh, before we turn the cameras on. Um, and it itself, right, was founded in the early Viking Age. So there's Viking roots there. And so you specialize in the Viking Age in Denmark, but primarily towns and urban networks. Is that right? Yeah, I think, guess what really fascinates me about the Viking Age is this massive change that it, uh, it brings on in Scandinavia, and which has to do with its networks, the, the possibilities that people have for engaging beyond their uh, their local worlds in new ways. And to me, that's really what the Viking Age is a lot about. And uh, the, for, the, the place to look for that is, of course, trading towns like Aarhus, uh, Aarhus on uh, on the western coast at the North Sea. I um when I we were just mentioning before we turned the cameras on that I was there in August for the first time and we had been in Copenhagen and we took the ferry across from I don't know remember the name of that point but anyway that ferry that goes all all day long back and forth and I have to say that that was really interesting to me just because of. I'm always telling my students I want to try to give them a sense of place. So whenever I travel to sort of Viking Age sites or places, I'm trying to sort of capture something. And for me, that was um, interesting to be on those waters, on a boat, you know, and and just feel like, okay, this is where this is where it happened. And then and again, staying where we did and looking at the busy activity of that harbor and just sort of, you know, I mean, obviously it's a modern place now, but just sort of imagining like all right th this is the place you know and, and i think there's just there's something to that i mean in in some of the historic uh cities like Aarhus, all that you really see is of course modern buildings or comparatively modern buildings um 
but the streets actually are often uh, 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 sort of something that connects you to the Viking Age. If you walk the streets of Aarhus, chances are in most places, uh, and we've got a pretty good steer on this, most places you are actually walking uh, in the same kind of environment, uh, in, in the same places as those streets were. So you get a sense of the of the uh, size, which is always very small when you're dealing with with uh, Viking Age towns, uh, and also the connections that uh, this place has. So lots has changed, but I think they're still mirrored in 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 this uh, the physicality of the experience, and especially, of course, if you connect that in your in your imagination with what you know about uh, the place, you can go on. Um, race um um vanished church buildings or um caves or burial sites for your inner eye as you pass through the streets of a place like that yeah especially the latin quarter i mean it feels yes. so medieval yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it was great so okay so and then you've also of course published a lot the favorite uh edited book volume title that i, I like is silver butter cloth <laughs> And uh, I'm sure my my co-host CJ would love to hear you add salt to that as far as a Viking commodity. So maybe we'll talk about that a little bit. But you also are the project coordinator for the Northern Emporium project, um, looking at Reba, which I did not get a chance to go down to, which I'm so I'll have to come back to Thank Denver. You. Yeah, but it is a very important archaeological site, right, for the North Sea trading world. And you've been working on that project for quite a number of years. Yeah. Yeah. And Reba is really a gem of the Viking world. I mean, there are a few, but Reba is definitely one. And um, what's so special about it uh, is that it was the the North Sea coasts uh, are actually very challenging uh, for for um, uh, for sailors. Uh, we have uh, well, obviously in Norway uh, there are the the rocky uh, uh, coastline. But in Denmark and northern Germany, we have that hideous uh, Wadden Sea, uh, which uh, is extremely tidal. And uh, beyond that, there are these barrier islands, which also uh, makes for very uh, dangerous uh, sailing. So uh, in the past, there were only a very few places where you could breach those barriers and land safely. And Reba is the northernmost part a place like that uh, and as such it became a hub for people sailing from the north from Scandinavia uh, southbound or coming from Western Europe from the Frankish world to trade with the Scandinavians and that's a role that we can follow all the way back through the Viking Age and even a century or so before which is unique so all the other big uh, Viking Age trading sites like Heatherby or Birka, they tend to pop up uh, around 800, around the time that we at least nominally put as the start date for the Viking Age. Mm-hmm. Um, but Reba is different. Reba uh, emerges about a century before that. Mm-hmm. And the extraordinary thing is that the archaeology of that century and the early part of the Viking Age is so well preserved that we can for once really do as I think many people imagine that you, as when you dig down into the ground you can sort of slowly unravel uh, uh, time slices 
Now, archaeologists know that mostly that's uh, that's not what we're doing because things have been messed around and only partially preserved. But in Libya, you can actually find building lots where over two or three hundred years stuff has just accumulated, floor upon floor upon floor. So we can get a sense in this place of, as I, as you might say, how the Viking Age emerged, how it developed, what happened decade by decade. And that's what makes it a really unique archaeological place. This reminds me, like with some of the things that you find, um, I listened to a while back another podcast that you did, and you you called it um, Hair Combs the iPhone of the Viking Age. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean they made a lot of hair combs in Riga too, and there's a there's this, I mean hair combs just I mean the the when you go to museums and you see all these hair combs, with, with, you, you might even easily think it's slightly ridiculous. Why all these hair combs? Of all things, why hair combs? But then think a little bit about it. How do you use a comb in the Viking Age? Yeah. This is not this is not a place where you or a time when you have a big uh, mirror in your hall. Using a comb is a social activity, right? So uh, if you have to have your hair done, somebody has to do it for you. So you're in a situation with somebody you're, um, well, are intimate with or want to do a, make a good impression on or want to uh, nudge to something. And um, obviously you want to use your own comb on your own hair. You don't want to have somebody else's lice. Um, so I imagine yeah. all these combs are really a social strategy. Okay, so you 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 meet somebody uh, or uh, meet a relative, and they say, "Ah, oh, do you want me to do your hair?" And they say, "Sure, oh, please, here's my comb." And you definitely don't want to have a, a, a old, broken, bad comb. You want to have a posh comb. Your 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 belt buckles and all the other stuff that that uh, uh, that you're wearing might not might be much less important to you because people don't see that so much. But when you encounter people, you want to have a good comb to 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 hand them. So there's a, there's little stories like that to so much of the material culture. Um, and, and when you're in a place like Birke or Rebel, that's the kind of things you find uh, and which tells you about people's lives. Both because things like that were produced and sold there, so so they were circulated, but also because so many people came there and 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 used stuff and met each other and interacted and had to, had to apply their social strategies, right? Yeah, that reminds me of when I used to teach in the ancient world, and for whatever reason, you know, I did this when I talked about ancient Rome, but. Um, the, the idea of engaging with the past with all of your senses, you know, it's so difficult for us to, to think, and I'm, I'm imagining this with what you're talking about, you know, like, what it, what does it sound like when you're walking down the street? What does it smell like? You know, what what are people saying? You know, how how do you, how are you experiencing all of those things? Even like, what is, what does the clothing feel like on your skin? You know, what is it that people are wearing and, and all of that kind of stuff? It's just so is so lost to us, but particularly sound. I mean, people don't tend to think very much about how relatively like so, so recent in human history that it is that we've had the ability to record and maintain sound over time. Mm -hmm. You know, so yeah. listening to people's voices and all of that and just the bustle that would have been going on there, it's, it's yeah, that's a pretty amazing sort of thought experiment. Yeah. And there are also, I mean, the, the, the towns in 
Sweden, Norway, Denmark, and so are places that are lost to a greater extent than, than some other parts of the Viking world because for 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 all the problems we have with sagas, they still give well at least a medieval view of uh, the world. When we can uh, we can many of the historical details may have sort of been been uh, treated uh, uh, freely, but you can get a sense of what medieval Iceland is and Viking Age Iceland when you read the sagas. But for some reasons, the the uh, the towns were not sort of poetic subjects uh, to the same extent. So we don't have a lot of of uh, good descriptions of what it was like to be in one of those places. So we have to use our imagination and the archaeology, which hopefully, uh, luckily, is uh, is so strong. Uh, it's just these places. I imagine the the combs. Uh, just to go back on the comb thing, I my I, I this is too good not to interject with this. But my dad had a comb in his back pocket for the better part of my entire life. I, I, recently, I haven't seen him pull it out. He used to have a nice big fat Tom Selleck mustache from the 1980s, wavy black hair, and he had this comb. And everywhere he went, it was he'd get out of the car, he would go and he'd pull it out and just. He didn't need a mirror. It's just like a compulsion kind of thing. And I imagine, like, I could, I, so I can kind of envision my dad is is a big lumbering, you know, very Western European. He, I mean, he, he would fit well in a Viking movie, right? Uh, and yeah. I can just so you can kind of picture that like these guys going around and like, oh, we're going to go visit the Jarl. And then they put and then they just have a comb in their back pocket and just doot, doot, in the beard a little bit. And all right, let's get in there. You know, <laughs> I'll tell you a story about combs then, because we um, we had uh, this uh, great excavation a few years ago in Rebe when we uh, found um well, we excavated a house all the way down through the Viking Age and before. And in one level, there had been a fire uh, which had destroyed the building, and people had clearly been in a hurry to to uh, get out. Uh, so some of the things that they had left in there were combs, and we found two extremely different forms of combs. One was the Frisian kind. We know that from all around the the North Sea. They're they're quite tiny and neat and uh, very good for for uh, grooming and uh, removing lice. Um, and they would always be worn in a little um, uh, comb case. So, so you know, very neat and contained. And then with them were these twice as large, big, uh, you know, ostentatious combs that we know from Norway and Sweden, which, well, they're not, they're not neat at all, but they are so bragging. And you couldn't just, you couldn't help yourself but imagining how, how these people coming from two different uh, traditions, just like you say, if your dad, I mean, the way they would have used these combs would have been second nature to them. And then meeting somebody who had, were so outrageous with their combs, so bragging, so so, uh, well, I think these these people who met there, these Scandinavians and these Frisians, must have all sorts of thoughts about how strange these people were, and and uh, they must also have been fascinated. Uh, I wonder what the Frisian ladies thought of these, you know, perhaps tra uh, traveling Norwegians with their big combs. <laughs> there could have been all sorts of innuendo and 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 fun about uh, so, cultural differences, and that was all in a comb. So, so I, what I'm hearing is, it's all, a, a comb could have been used 
as a symbol of wealth, a symbol of largesse. Perhaps they were even given as gifts, you know. So you're, if I'm a, you're all in a big hall, and I have guests come in, and and you know, it's just you know, call call your wife over, like Elga, come comb my hair, and she just pulls out this massive, you know, and she's this huge comb, and everyone's like, oh, have you seen Magnus's comb? It's huge, you know. Like, I, this is great. This is going to end up in a book. <laughs> I mean, it's true, and I'll tell you that the end of that story because there is a, there is a. a, a a, a detail you couldn't fake it because then in one corner we found the the worst comb you can imagine it was it had not been finished the the teeth were cut uh, they were uh, leaning this side and that side uh, the the, um, the plates had been hammered uh, wrongly in but what it was it was clearly an attempt to copy those posh Norwegian combs. So somebody was in that room who went to great length to try to have his own and failed. Wow. Like the knockoff Oathbert swords, right? <laughs> exactly, yeah. You can't, you can't make this up. Like, you know that show, The Norsemen, and they make all those jokes about, have you yeah. have you seen The Norsemen show produced out of yeah. Norway? Yeah. And it's it's a riot, but I, I'm, I'm surprised they haven't, they didn't use that as one of their jokes, right? They're, <laughs> you know, sitting in there and just, oh, here's my coat. You know, like the, the season three was all about the prequel to the bad guy. It's all about male pattern baldness. And the opening scene is with a comb. And they could have, they they missed an opportunity there, I feel like, because that's, you know, oh, and then, you know, show up and here's my comb, you know, just. <laughs> yeah. Now think of that next time you see a, a comb in the museum. There could be precious history in that piece. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm sure there was. Actually, there's so much stuff there in Denmark. I couldn't believe it. And I, I actually didn't even go to, um, what is it? You have kind of like an underground Viking museum or something there. Yes, no, yeah. Yeah, and somebody said to me, did, did you go to that? And, you know, by that point in time, I'd been in Copenhagen, I'd been in Odense, I'd been, you know, like I'd been all over the place. And I was just like, you know, there's only so many ways that iron rivets and, you know, co hair combs can be interpreted and reinterpreted. It's like sort of got overly saturated with, with Viking stuff, but uh... no, but it's fine. I mean, and the the, the um, uh, you should come to the Viking uh, Underground Museum if you uh, if you ever get back to Aarhus. It's it's not like the Jorvik Museum. I bet you've been at at, at that. I have it. I but, have it. But it's the same idea that they put the exhibition just right where the stuff was uh, excavated. Uh, this was back in the nineteen sixties. Is one of the first major. Uh, town excavations in, in in Scandinavia, and you can still sort of visit the, the 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 place where it happened. But I'll tell you what, because well, when one of the treats you get to uh, to have as an archaeologist is you can you can um, crash in on your colleagues' digs. <laughs> and um, a couple of years ago, you were talking about the Latin Quarter in Aarhus, which is you know the old uh, very um, the nice uh, streets with all these little shops. And a few years ago, uh, one of my colleagues was called to to um, uh, have a look in the basement there because they were doing refurbishing the um, the building. And can you imagine that you come into a house? It's it's like a, a, a um, uh, it's during refurbishment, so everything is is walls have been pulled down, and you. Uh, you must take a ladder down to get down into the basement. You go, go into the basement. There in the basement, there's a big hole in 
before and you go down another two meters, you can hope that the, the uh, house will, will, will stay calm while you're there. And there, right at the bottom there, you see the earliest level of the Viking towns and you can make out, well, a little part of the rampart uh, in one side. I mean, that's, you, you just, there's nothing like it. There's, uh, it's really a close encounter with, with another civilization. And then going up again and knowing this is this stuff is right under your feet, yeah. all over wherever you walk in this area, and it's still there. See, this is the thing that's so great about, or that makes you all you in Europe, Europe, and so lucky, right, CJ? I mean, we're out here on the west coast of the United States, and basically, unless you're Native American, there is no deep history like that, right? I mean, we just you know we've been here for a couple hundred years and particularly on the West Coast, we don't have as deep history as the East Coast. So it's like, oh, I envy, I envy that uh, quite a bit, at least because I'm a historian. I just, I don't know, like to be places like that where you can actually feel the past. We um, have, we have geology. That's yeah. what we have. <laughs> yeah, well, you do. Yeah, yeah, you do for sure. Yeah, in, in yeah, all the volcanoes and the and it's a it's a fascinating area geologically just because of the North American plate smashing into the Pacific plate. So it's creating folding and then we've got hot spots. We've got a super volcano. I mean, there's there's lots to admire. There's the awe of nature. But yes, as far as human activity, we don't have a lot. In fact, I, I just finished a book on fur trappers and researching that book was actually easier than researching the books for the Viking Age. Because we actually know more about the Vikings than we do about what happened with fur trek. Because these these guys went out all by themselves. They didn't write anything down. All we know is, well, he maybe went here, and he maybe went there, and he maybe. Had, and then we have a little bit of oral history, and that's it. <laughs> and and place names. We have play everything here is French. Like we're in Deschutes, uh, Deschutes, uh, which means waterfalls in French. Terbonne, Terbonne, uh, which means good earth. We have Malheur, Malheur Lake, which means misery. That's the title of my book. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, but it's, yeah, it's, it's, we have, we don't have a ton here um, versus, yeah, you go to Europe, like uh, Octavia Randolph, uh, also a, a historical fiction a writer who moved to Gotland specifically to be on site. But she's like, you, you're not allowed to dig, you know, more than 30 centimeters into your garden without having an official observer because there's so much silver everywhere. There will be something there. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I mean the the the, the fur trappers. I'm glad you bring those up because the um, well, they're actually a very good well, uh, it's a model for for uh, some of what Viking Age trade uh, would have been like. Um, I've seen a couple of places where you know they excavated uh, early uh, forts in Canada and um, the kind of stuff you find in in in, in that setting. Is really remarkably similar to what you'd find in, say, uh, a place like the the, the Viking Eastern uh, town, Staria Ladoga. You know, lots of, of um, little um, items that work well in trade for tinkering and bartering with, with uh, people, and lots of stuff for uh, sustaining. Uh, your safety, your life, and and staging journeys. Yeah, I don't know. They had glass. Oh, go ahead, DCJ. I was gonna say they had glass beads, and that was one of the things I have some of my research books back here. And 
and they could trade with the natives. And the natives thought these glass beads were were uh, extremely valuable. And one of the things that I included in the book originally, and I had to take it out because my editor suggested that I I should probably not try to get canceled. Uh, but it's it's in the story is they pay glass beads in exchange for for yeah. a a native guide, a woman, and you could actually you know these these white trappers could go out there and they could exchange glass beads for for a wife, a bride, and that yeah. actually happened. That's real history. All but because of the sensitivity today yeah. uh yeah my editor was like you should take that out you're going to alienate your readers and yeah. unfortunately that's the truth so i took it out but as fun history i tried to put it in there <laughs> but the funny thing is though i mean we've got we've got uh exactly the same comment about the vikings uh even fartland's famous account of meeting the rose uh he writes that um you can buy a slave for a green bead from these people so so it, it's it's the same and as long as there is this this gap between what what you have and somebody else have you might get away with what you think is an extremely good deal and uh your your trading partner will think that he's made a million she's made a million um exactly for that reason and i think that those those edges well like in the spice trade, one side has spice, uh, which is absolutely unobtainable uh, elsewhere. Um, that has just brought people uh, into strange, well, strange, but very, very interesting relationship. In Scandinavia, of course, uh, the original attraction, or one of the original attractions was the fur, um, which, of course, you can have fur from many places, but it, the, the best quality of many uh, for um, uh, animals was in the north. So there is, even going back before the Viking Age, we can see that there is actually trapping uh, on a massive scale. And um, so so there's a lot of similarity. And and in a sense, the, the New World fur trade is just a spillover from, well, in the first place, from Eastern Europe, but originally from Scandinavia. Scandinavia and the Baltic Sea area was the original sort of source of fur in the in the um for the Arab world in the in the uh, early Middle Ages. Did you ever see that old um it's been about 15 years ago this uh, HBO series called Deadwood? Yeah. And it was it was set in like a 1870s like a frontier mining town in South Dakota in the upper Midwest of the United States, and it was one of these kind of frontier network places where it's you know all these sort of characters of various kinds sort of coming together and trading and doing all this and anyway. But I just remember reading at one point in one of his books, and Neil Price um, likened Staria Ladoga to Deadwood. You know, just oh, yeah. this. Yeah. Of this <laughs> this node, right? You know, where there's all these interesting characters from these yeah. various places and cultures are coming together to trade and yeah. do all that kind of engagement. Yeah, and that's really what what uh, what I think uh, it, it's a very good picture uh, because what happens, of course, is that that this may be a liminal space space to to most people. So many people may have been there at some point in their life. Because if you get out and away from your village, uh, there's only so many places that's worth going. Mm -hmm. But very few people will have stayed there, or relatively few. Um, so uh, the people who come there make temporary relations, temporary relations with somebody else. And I, I always wonder, 
how did that work in a world which was so much more uh, predicated on you know kinship and um, and close uh, long-lasting uh, friendships in a sense i think these places were pioneering uh, uh, the kind of social relations that we use a lot today the weak ties that we meet with set up with uh, extend trust to and then leave again colleagues at work or uh, friends in in school or at the um, uh, in a club or something yeah i think in my mind at least in american history i mean those places particularly like that at that time you know these literally the kind of frontier sort of places that you know it tended to draw people who i mean on some level maybe were kind of quasi biking in that they they were just interested in going out and 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 taking the risk right and seeing you know could they go pan for gold or whatever it might happen to be it right and just and to see what they could make for themselves so Right. They well, were entrepreneurs. And, yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We talked about that with Tom Horn, right? Which <laughs> were, the, were the Vikings capitalists, right? The, the fur trappers definitely worked capitalists. <laughs> Living under that system. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, in, in historically, um, for a long time, uh, people were, were, didn't want to accept the fact that that, um, in, in that sense, the, the, the Viking trade is very modern. Uh, it, it, it was people who were um, engaging in order to make a good deal. Um, there's all this uh, anthropology and sociology that, that um, imagine that people in the past were only able to think in terms of, of gifts and kinship and, and social relations. No, we're, we're humans. We have both sides. Uh, we can uh, exploit each other with a smile. <laughs> and, and I think that's how you have to Im imagine these places. People are, why do you come to a trading town? Because you want to earn a fortune. You, you hope to, to, to gain something from people there. But you can be good friends all the same. And, and, and that's really, that's, that's one of the things that I, I, I keep returning to. Uh, I'm really fascinated by in these places. You have people who were, uh, in principle, antagonistic. Um, they're there without the close relatives that they grew up with, um, trying to, uh, well, uh, carry on with some strangers they've met. And yet these places, well, thrive for centuries. People managed to cope with that. Um, and and that's a skill that we sometimes forget people in the past would have had. This is not just in the modern world. Imagine that you can grow up in a Viking village, maybe in some uh, isolated place like the Orkney Islands or in northern Norway. You can go on a boat and then you can jump off in a big place like that and you can succeed and make friends with people. And the the ability to to for people to do that and to extend trust and not to be completely uh, abused, I think that's that's something that 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 uh, must have been special. And there was a lot of what we we uh, what happened in the social arrangements there uh, would have revolved around that. And perhaps the Combs coming back to that mm -hmm. is part of that. 
the kind of little shared customs that would would uh, ease relationships and and uh, bring a, a, a homely or a friendly uh, um, element into into all those business affairs. That's that's what really created uh, all those small worlds of, of temporary relations. So I want to get actually to um, the something you just mentioned there. I mean, you said so the the sailing, the traveling. Um, you know, because what we're talking about here in these little nodes of uh, the Emporia, as they are all, all called yeah. as well, right? Like these places where people are trading and stuff. But you know, there's getting to point A from point A to point B, and this is you know part of a maritime network, right? And so. It, uh, just last week, as it so happens, so my students were assigned to read uh, a paper that you gave at a conference in Belgium, like in 2011, uh, called All in the Same Boat. I don't know if you remember that, but but it was about the Vikings as, you know, European and global heritage. And so you talk a bit about all the ways that the Vikings are kind of interpreted and reinterpreted in the modern era and everything else. But it's sort of like, what is the true legacy of the Vikings? And at least in this piece, it, 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 you talk about the legacy being this maritime legacy. And, you know, world maritime expansion that happened uh, in the early Middle Ages and them just being critical about that. And I think we've talked with other guests about this and it always comes up, I think, uh, you know, when talks about Vikings, it's like the ships are this iconic thing. Right. And 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 there's, a, you know, for me, I have to say, sometimes it's like I get, it gets so overblown, like how great the ships were and how great seafarers they were and everything. It's kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, boats existed before. CJ, you've given mm -hmm. talks about the ships and stuff. And so it's kind of, I would, I'd love to have hear you talk about this a little bit more as far as these networks, but also is, is, do they live up to the hype? You know, were the Vikings actually better sailors, you know, and creators of these networks than anybody else? Well, I think, I think you can put it that way. Um, there were, a lot of people were using uh, sailing vessels, or at least uh, uh, sailing or rowing vessels uh, in the early Middle Ages. But there's there is a big difference uh, as to how how their place in the culture. Um, let's take the uh, uh, glorious Anglo-Saxons of the migration period. Uh, they're clearly. Uh, Operating rowing boats, presumably, to uh, just in order to 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 land in the British Isles and uh, colonize part of that, uh, we've got the genetic evidence that, uh, now that shows that there was this big uh, uh, mix of populations going on. But if you then look a little bit later in when into the written. Uh, uh, sources uh, from the um, uh, seventh and eighth centuries. Well, aristocrats in, in England might be well might be interested in the products of of that that came uh, with boats, but there was no social competition about uh, actually going into uh, shipping uh, operating boats. You would never see a. Uh, uh, um, uh, an English aristocrat uh, in the eighth century um, going into uh, sailing. Uh, there were also uh, so many other options open. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the Scandinavian world, 
uh, well, from what we can see from the archaeology and also from the picture we get from uh, later sources, this was really what was the uh, at, at the at the center of social competition um, at the individual level uh, for 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 young males to become a, 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 a skillful, admired sailor uh, and a daring warrior. But the two things went together. But also at at a, at a social level of well gathering the sources, there's it's such an enormous amount of resources you need to put into it to have uh, uh, a culture of sailing ships. But one thing is to build a sailing ship once you know how to build it. But to develop that skill, uh, it it really must have been uh, an extraordinary amount of uh, people's surplus that went into constructing the sails, getting all the rope, uh, building the, the, the hulls, and getting all that to balance. When people have built copies today, it's turned out that that tiny little differences can make the difference between a really horrible ship and a really excellent ship. Um, if you talk to boat builders today, well, they can go on forever about those things. Yeah. And and we can see that with this um, in the Scandinavian Viking Age, it must have been the same because so much is, is centered around these ships. That's the difference, really. It's not that, like, say, the uh, uh, Slavic population in the uh, Baltic Sea uh, couldn't operate ships. In fact, they became really very proficient at doing that. But it takes a certain society um, to put their resources into that instead of something else. And that's the difference. So during the Viking Age, I think this, you, you can say that the... the, the um, Scandinavian society became obsessed with ships, and ships were at the heart of both expansion into the North Atlantic uh, settlement in Iceland, Greenland, and uh, Vinland. Uh, to those rates uh, that we hear so much about in the, in the uh, uh, Western European sources, and also to the trade, the trade that meant that what you did on your mountainside uh, in the spring when you uh, uh, reared your stock or um, um, uh, weaved cloth was connected through this trade to something that happened a completely, entirely different place in the world. Yeah. CJ, I think you need to ask him about the salt thing. Well, yeah, I was, I was going to mentioned you know i can't i came into this conversation expecting to talk about silver since you've done so much work yeah. on silver trade and networks and uh starting in the east and we ended up talking about cones so yeah. <laughs> you know that's a that's a fun little detour uh but yes the uh uh i've i followed your work and in fact is your work that helped me to synth uh, synthesize my ideas around one of the mysteries of of the Viking expansion in Western Europe, specifically wow. the southern Brittany region of France, and the connection there is. Uh, so, you, if you look at the early progression of of the Viking expansion, they hit Lindisfarne in seven ninety three, they hit Iona in seven ninety five, and then in seven ninety nine, they show up in Normandie in Western France, which is a long extra way to go from the Irish Sea. 
just for if you're if you're just looking to loot a monastery, right? Uh, I, we also had a conversation with Matthew Panessi, who talked about you know his his focus is ninth uh, century monasticism. He said, "I spent a career ignoring the Vikings," and that was really eye opening for me because then it 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 speaks to just how little of an impact the Vikings actually had. They're just mentioned so prominently because what they did, it's like a terrorist attack, basically, right? So it didn't impact society as a whole, but it definitely created a shock in the in the public conscience. But to go all the way to, to that part of France, which is the middle of nowhere, uh, the other thing, too, is if you go to Lindisfarne, the Holy Island, it's it's what we call in French, an almost island. It, it's It's got a road that gets, it's submergible road. Uh, that yeah. leads and Dalmutia has the same thing. It's a submergible road. Now there wouldn't have been a road back then, but there's a sandbar you could have crossed. And that's how people got on and off the island. So I remember I, I visited Lindisfarne with my dad, and he looked, and we got stuck at the submergible road. We hadn't timed the tide correctly. I looked at him. I said, "Don't tell anybody we did this. <laughs> Just tell them I had it figured out." Um, but then he looks and he goes, "You know that." The Vikings, they're pas con. He said uh, the the Vikings weren't stupid, were they? Like they kind of figured out there's a there's a thing here, right? A, a, a monastery on an island that's with a submergible road, very similar conditions. The difference is in Western France and Normandy, they went back as far as we can tell. Well, so so starting about eight, so they started in 799. There were a couple other raids after that, and then in 819. We have the abbot of the monastery complaining of frequent and persistent raids, and they started to abandon the island every summer, expecting Viking raids all the way until 836, which is interesting. But then the question is, so why did they go back there over and over and over when you look at the other sites they hit and they didn't? I mean, I think I know they went back twice, but then they stopped. Right. Like, oh, they're not bringing anything back. And yeah, sure. The monks are coming back and replenishing. But what was there that was luring them persistently? Uh, and and the the island is known for its its salt production. So salt is is kind of the idea. Right. But then, OK, but what value is salt? There are other ways to get salt than to go to all the way to to uh, Western France. Uh, but then you have the fallout with the Carolingians, right? So Charlemagne basically said, we're not trading with these people anymore. So it shut off the salt mines in Salzburg, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I can, I can really go down the rabbit hole. But where your research comes in is you talk about the influx of silver into Scandinavia that then offset the silver standards, so the value of silver inflated. Yeah. And so that's why we see so much buried in, in Gotland because they didn't know what to do with it. And so now mm -hmm. if I'm a, a, a poor farmer in Norway, and um, Denmark, I need to find something valuable to the Swedes to get more of that silver. And if I go hit a monastery and I get silver, well, that, 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 we have enough of that. <laughs> right? So then they have to find another commodity. And then why salt? Well, because, and then I, I don't know if you're involved with this, I, I, but there was a study that came out this year that really helped bolster this idea because um, it used to be that um, the main fish that was traded was cod, which is dried, so you don't need salt. But now there's evidence to show that the herring trade started in the 8th century, late 8th century, early 9th century. Uh, and herring is a fattier fish, and it needs to be salted. And it came off the, it came from off the coast of Norway, but got traded, and they found fish bones on the Baltic coast. So, yes. So I guess my question to you is... Um, Am I crazy or am I onto something? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, if people keep coming back, uh, there was a reason for that. 
And I think what we what we need to remember better is that once you're on a boat, uh, geography just changes completely. Uh, and what is close and what is uh, far uh, distant is something uh, is is an entirely different story. Um, if you were traveling by inland, uh, hundred kilometers might be a lot of an obstacle. But if you have traveled to the Irish Sea, uh, Brittany is right there. Another few days sailing the south. So if you know that this is where to obtain what you're looking for, of course you go. Um, so and, and and that's a great example of how uh, sailing ships, you know, changes uh, this, the the um, the balance uh, of of interactions. So places like Brittany is is uh, in um, in terrestrial sense, it's this um, corner uh, of uh, a continent, but in a maritime con uh, perspective, it's really the edge. Of of, uh, of of uh, connectivity, uh, and and that's a change that doesn't just happen uh, in Scandinavia, but in fact in 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 uh, all along the coastlines of of northern Europe, and that's also why um, uh, along those coastlines you've got this there this dotting of Scandinavian names because at 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 the time when this change happened. Um, the the master sailors were Scandinavian. If you sail in around the Irish Sea, uh, the coast is dotted with names that only make sense uh, from the Scandinavian route. So it's not just what what you do; it's really the landscape and your and and your perception of the world that that changes uh, with that. And silver is a good example uh, because if you're in a village society uh, where 99% of your social interaction is within your own village and the neighboring one. What would you use silver for? Well, you might use it for jewelry, but um, there's not a lot of social competition anyway. Um, but once you're in that uh, exchange world where you go to long distances exchange with people, that's when you need a common uh, uh, means of exchange. And silver just offers itself very uh, eloquently, you might say, because it's you know it's durable, it's scarce, it's useful for uh, um, um, uh, jewelry, so it's um, it's attractive in that sense. Uh, and at least in the early uh, Viking Age, um, it's sufficiently scarce to be really a, quite a, a useful. Um, well, have very useful physical properties for uh, as a medium of exchange, um, and we see this. I'm sure you've you've um, uh, you're very familiar with this. Um, this this funny process where silver gets uh, worked into beautiful jewelry and then chopped up again as if it didn't matter. Uh, used to exchange, melted down, used as bullion turned into jewelry again. So it must have been a super uh, um, um, process, which then in places like Gotland, which is actually very much a village society, once you get beyond the, the trading harbors, just get stored, hoarded, uh, 
not because people, I don't think it's right to say that they didn't know what to use it for, but it, it became a pension, uh, basically, uh, something to fall back on. You didn't, you didn't need silver for daily transactions like you did in a trading town, but it was very good for safekeeping because it might be very useful to you in, your, in the future. So I think that the, the the what you say about well the silver and the the um, um, there's an analogy between what happens with ships and geography and what happens with commodities and silver really. So uh, once you start to have an exchange economy, um, you need the you need a a, a common uh, means of exchange, and silver gets to take that role, and that's why we see this massive uh, love of silver. Uh, in the Viking world. So that reminds me of um, when we talked with Tom Horn, and um, he, he mentioned your work a lot as well, of course, because he was talking about the silver influx into the West in Ireland and Britain. Um, but also I was interested in this idea that actually is part of the title of his book of these market kingdoms. And it's interesting to me to think about, and I wanted to ask you, so, you know, in other places, maybe in, 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 uh, parts of Western Europe where you've got, you know, trade happening in certain towns as far as by royal charter and, and all of this kind of stuff. Um, what is happening in the Viking world with these market kingdoms as far as who is controlling the trade? You know, uh, is there a, a similar kind of mechanism there for gatekeeping or allowing or how is that working? Well, we, we um, our sources are very uh, uh, different uh, for for the different areas in in um, in Dublin we have uh, wonderful contemporary uh, uh, annals that tells us something about uh, interactions in uh, European Russia we have trading places but very few uh, written sources uh, to tell us what happened so um, whatever we say will be a guess. Um, but I, I, I'm, I'm taken by the analogy with Dublin, where we, where we have the written sources. So we've got a big trading place. We have the archaeology to, to, uh, to illustrate that, and then we have the sort of the, 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 the uh, annals and written sources that tells us that this is not just peaceful merchants living there. No, the Dublin Vikings are raiding the countryside and uh, entering into little wars with, with. Uh, petty kings and then uh, going into uh, alliances. So it's a very violent balance in a way. And I wonder whether we shouldn't think of the same kind of interaction for places like the Liebe or Hedeby, where there's actually a, a um, it's a very volatile balance, um, but basically um, there is a lot of energy uh, in these places. There's lots of resources that can be used. Well, there are the people obviously who come there, but there's also the, all the, the uh, goods that can be used to buy you supporters or buy you uh, influence. And so I think that we we um, today what we know actually of who ruled these places is anecdotal. We have stories about the kings in Hedeby. They're told from a Frankish perspective um, and uh, looks conspicuously Frankish <laughs> uh, uh, in, in, in their, their actions. 
we have this this uh, glimpse of um, um, uh, Scandinavians being pulled in to uh, as, as governors in uh, Dorestad or uh, um, uh, eventually also in in, in Normandy. Um, so uh, obviously, uh, a trading town or emporium, as archaeologists have uh, sometimes called it, to avoid that, that confusion about what is a town, what is a city. Um, but they were a great uh, asset in power games to somebody, but not necessarily just to one ruler. Um, I think it's a big difference that, that in the medieval world order, uh, a town should ideally come with one uh, monster. Yeah. And and if we can take the um, uh, the sources that we have uh, at some level of face value, that's not always the case with the Viking towns. Um, there would be a lot of competition because that was what they were for. They were these sort of gateway uh, places that were a little bit outside the normal control. Uh, Norman pattern of control. Remember, this is a society where um, people actually have a high level of law and order, believe it or not. But, uh, there was the whole assembly system for dealing with crime and punishment and um, fines, um, lawing people. Um, and, um, well, of course, we hear about uh, um, the, uh, the system when it was uh, uh, violated. Uh, so you might remember uh, Eric the Red's uh, saga where he continues just to be outlawed from one place after another <laughs> and ends up in Greenland. But but it also shows that the system worked. This was not just a lawless uh, uh, society. It was a society that had a lot of social control and um, you have to have so many witnesses and so many people to advocate your case, blah, blah, blah. Now, the trading towns by by almost um, um, by nature were a little bit outside that system because they were places that were open to people who came from different places, from different lowlands uh, and from different rulers. So if they existed, they existed because it was being accepted that, okay, you can come here um, and and um, abide by certain rules, but not necessarily the rules of the land. So I think that that uh, they were a benefit and they were kept uh, uh, working because they were so useful to people, but not necessarily just to one ruler. So. I, I just wanted to add the in there, you know, it's it's interesting. We I, when I speak with the general public, there's this idea that the Vikings are this one group, but they were actually a, a number of disparate little groups operating independently. We talked about this with Tom Horn, yeah. And uh, in Ireland, for example, you have the in the annals they talk about the the Dubgall and the Fingal, the two different groups that were fighting each other. Uh, it's I, I picked up on something that you said though that helped something click in my head. Because you talked about the, these little pieces of violence that were spread out in there, where they're they're making alliances and they're fighting these people in there. So it's not just a peaceful trade, you know, market kingdom. There's violence spread out, 
And and thinking of all these disparate groups, it seems to me that places like Dublin and uh, Jorvik, for example, which were flourishing trade towns, they were essentially, they figured out a way to manage the chaos. It's like a, we could call it maybe like a controlled chaos, all these little groups coming in and then they just had a system. But if you go back and going back to Brittany, if you go to the city of Nantes, which was occupied by the Vikings as well in the late 9th century, early 10th century, when there was the reconquest of Brittany by Alain Barbetort and they took Nantes back, the um, the city was derelict. They had made, it appeared that they had made no effort to turn it into the same kind of flourishing trade town that they had done in Jorvik and Dublin, which is, is it's like a historical mystery. Why? But then when you said that, it just it, it occurred to me that alongside them occupying Brittany, they were the we know that the the people occupying Brittany were um, most likely of of Norwegian provenance, versus the ones operating in Normandy were more likely of Danish provenance. And this is kind of dubious; we don't really know. But what we do know is they were fighting each other constantly. And there was the, the, these mini wars. So it, it's it's could just be a matter of of in Jorvik and Dublin they figured out how to create that controlled chaos. And for whatever reason, the leadership in in Nantes and in Brittany failed to do that, or the groups were just too different for whatever reason. It, it's still a mystery, but that kind of clicked in my head of you know oh that kind of helps solve that mystery a little bit of you know that's they tried the same thing, the chaos won. And that's right. I mean, there must have been lots of places where that was the case. Perhaps some of the, um, it, well, staying in Ireland, uh, we have Dublin, which eventually uh, uh, prevails uh, as a, a long-lived trading town. But uh, we also have a, a, a place like Woodstown, the, the, um, the uh, now famous uh, um, Longfort uh, or uh, ship camp uh, site which clearly operated as a, a campsite uh, at some point in the ninth century, but uh, was abandoned and never grew into uh, a town. Maybe there are stories like that that we don't know about, uh, about how chaos prevailed. Maybe they were even more common than the places where uh, eventually um, things were organized um, but they're much more, much less likely to transpire into our history. Right. We 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 know about the success stories by virtue of their success, and we right. don't know about the failures by virtue of their failures and nobody talking about it or leaving any sort of record. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So it could be just all of Europe could be replete with these sites, uh, and we don't know about them, and we never will because there's just no way of of knowing. Yeah. So I want to um switch gears a tiny bit and um, I'll throw out another interesting um, comment that you made in another podcast um, like with the hair combs and that is that the Oseberg ship was the King Tut of the Viking Age mm -hmm. and this is interesting to me um, to talk about because if anybody knows anything about sort of archaeology and the history of archaeology in the last hundred years or so, I mean the King Tut thing is 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 a is a debacle, right? I mean it's 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 not that <laughs> great the way the archaeology was conducted in those times and and you know the exploitation and all of that. And it also gets to what I was mentioning earlier about you know sort of questions about the museums and interpretations of Vikings and stuff like that. But it gets to sort of the ethics of archaeology for me. And so. Um, 
could you sort of explain a little bit about what you mean by the Oseberg being the King Tut of, of the Viking Age, but then also, you know, how how archaeologists, you know, kind of handle these things nowadays that is different from, you know, what, what we did at the time of King Tut, um, as far as this kind of exploitation of the past, quite, quite frankly, yeah. Oh, there's, there's a very big difference, of course, that Tutankhamun's uh, grave was uh, excavated in a colonial context, and the um, well, a lot of the the uh, conflicts that ensued were, were uh, brought about uh, as a result of that uh, conflicts between the Egyptian authorities and these uh, Europeans uh, excavating their. Uh, uh, Royal tombs, um, and actually, uh, the the in both cases, the archaeology is quite well conducted for its time. Um, of course, without a lot of the um, uh, possibilities that we have today. But I think the the similarity is that this is a find which we may never uh, get to. Uh, to match again, and uh, which comes to dominate uh, just about any subject that we can discuss of its age. Um, uh, you can rarely uh, approach New Kingdom Egypt without uh, beginning to use uh, the items or the, the stories revealed from uh, the moon's grave. Um, as a, <clears throat> as part of your your baseline, and I think it's the same with the Osberg ship, because it's such a rich uh, find. It simply, it's not just the ship, of course. It's everything that that came with it. Um, it's this spectacular burial. Uh, in recent years, there has been uh, new studies of the circumstances of the burial. Um, it's all the equipment from uh, um, uh, a rich, uh, in fact, a royal, uh, almost certainly, uh, farm in in uh, Westfall in Norway, uh, <clears throat> and uh, and it's the preservation, uh, the fact that that um, uh, for weird reasons, all of this was put into uh, a, a thick clay um, or. Buried in a place with thick clay, it must have been horrible to to excavate it. But it means that the preservation is just superb. So, if we discuss something like the Scandinavian art of the Viking Age, uh, if we didn't have the Oseberg find, we would miss uh, nine tenths of our super uh, pieces. We have that art preserved, of course, in tiny little bits of metal work. But we, if we had only that, we'd have no idea that there were these. Um, Grand uh, wood carvings on ships and bed posts and um, strange animal head posts and what have you not. So it's really a window that 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 uh, gives well lets in light on all the rest that we have uh, in tiny bits and pieces because for once we have the whole the almost the full assemblage. 
Yeah, it, it makes me think of, um, I remember reading um, Kat Jarman's book, River Kings, and her talking about going into, you know, a room somewhere where she was looking at, I think it was skulls of, of you know, some people, obviously, and, um, and just sort of, you know, this picture in my mind of like, there are all these people, right, in these boxes, on these shelves, and whatever, and and it just, and then I, again, I have background in museum work, and so I know what the vault looks like with all that stuff in it, right, and, and it's just kind of like, man, those people, I wonder what they would think if they knew that they ended up, you know, in a, a specimen in a box, and, you know, that kind of thought. Yeah. And, and, and I think isn't that a, a, a fascinating difference in a because you you um, well archaeologists excavate graves um, put dead people or their remains in boxes uh, and you sometimes think well hmm, maybe we shouldn't maybe that's not what people intended but then you have got a place like you know then you've got a a, a, um, a, a burial like the Osterberg ship which almost it's almost as if people wanted it to be found. It's been, it's all been put there, uh, put put away to survive in some sense. They could have burned it, they could have left it, they could have put it out to sea, but they put it there in 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 a way which almost makes you think that they're they are communicating with their own uh, concept of history, and and there is a there's a certain um, logic to the fact that once one day other people uh, will find it and marvel at it. Um, I don't know if, if, if that was ever a conscious choice, but it certainly was a, 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 a deliberate decision to put all this stuff there and put it away and cover it with this big mound, which will ensure that it will stay right there for a very long time. And then we can go and see it in a museum, right? And and yeah. hopefully learn something about it. Actually, on Monday, we are interviewing Ellen Ness, who's going to be talking to us about the new Museum of the Viking Age that's being built wow. in Oslo yeah. for the ships and stuff. And so, um, yeah, that's the other thing that it gets to that I you know wanted to ask you about, because I know... Um, so I went to see the, the the raid, right, which was at the yeah. museum, right, and and then um, I didn't, I haven't been to Sweden yet, so I didn't see the other one that was at the Swedish History Museum. But you had written a critique about those things, yeah. which I couldn't find online, which I would love to, I would love to read. But uh, there were other pieces, um, I think, in current Swedish archaeology or something where they they mentioned it, and so you could kind of infer what your thoughts were, but. So it sounded like maybe you were a little bit critical about how the Viking Age was being interpreted for those. And so I was wondering if maybe you could explain a little bit about, you know, just your thoughts on this. I mean, because you're out there digging this stuff up, but then, it you know, it has a purpose. And so how do we present yeah. this to the public? Well, in a sense, um, well, I sometimes think that, well, just as with the Orseberg ship, which was deliberately put away, if we think about some of the Viking Age myths and lore, there's actually an idea about, in a sense, museums. There is this uh, topic of going into a mound and picking up old an old sword uh, from your ancestor. Um, we've seen in recent years that that um, some old jewelry got curated. It pops up hundreds of years uh, too late. Um, so these are people who think 
historically about them, their their stuff, their material culture. They keep certain things. They even retrieve certain things from the past. So, all right, um, the 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 exhibitions today um, in the major museums. Of course, there's been this surge of interest um, uh, in recent years. So every major museum in Scandinavia needs to have a Viking exhibition, and there's a certain tension around uh, that fact because uh, archaeologists are saying, "All right, so why why single out the Viking Age? There are." thousands of years of history here uh, and uh, it's all part of the uh, legacy of uh, of the land and what what has made the place and its people into what it is today so you can't just just pick out a few hundred years and put all your weight in that and that's what happens uh, uh, currently um, for all sorts of reasons and it's interesting what 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 how that then takes place and in 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 the little piece you talked about i had visited uh the relatively new exhibition exhibition in in um stockholm at the historisk uh, museet uh, uh, and uh, the exhibition that opened around the same time i think it was uh, 2021 both exhibitions opened right up after the pandemic had started to ease um, uh, the exhibition in Copenhagen. And what really struck me is that they were, they were, there were similarities, but there was also very clear differences in how you present this, uh, this past. In Sweden, there is a lot of uh, people being very cautious about the Viking Age, um, which has to do with, with, also, Swedes' relationship to uh, nationalism and the past, and um, um, also to being in a in a relatively large and multi multi ethnic uh, state. Um, historically, uh, Sweden uh, has had the uh, big Sami population, uh, which has been uh, historically disadvantaged uh, in the state. And it's very prominent in the archaeology uh, in, uh, in the Viking Age. So there's lots of little things that you need to think very carefully about. So the Stockholm exhibition comes out actually quite balanced and a little bit uh, cautious. Um, but it's also, um, it's, a, it's a very beautiful exhibition. Uh, it's a great uh, experience, I think. Um, but to me, it also comes out a little bit like um going into a shop in an airport um you have got all these beautiful things and glass boxes and extremely well lit and just you know tiny little snippets of text that uh, won't tire you and very very mainstream story um and, and why why is that the way we want to to present uh, the Viking Age, especially, I mean, I can remember the, uh, the exhibition in Stockholm a few years back, which was sort of very politically correct and um, um, uh, clearly intended to sort of guide school children and give uh, give them well, well, an educational experience. Why has this changed? Because in the 21st century, we're all tourists. Or so much of our world is predicated on tourism. 
So the actual reason, the sort of decisive reason that made it, uh, the, the, the historic uh, museum in Stockholm decide that they needed the new art exhibition was that they needed something to to uh, show the tourists and to um, um, live up to uh, to that uh, um, that role for a museum. Uh, and I thought that's a very interesting reflection of how we think of ourselves in the world today. So uh, the old exhibition uh, was intended for uh, the taxpayers or for the community. So, but today uh, it's intended for tourists, people from all over, uh, this fleeting uh, modernity. Now the, the Copenhagen exhibition is interesting in a in a different way, um, in that it actually it was motivated by some of the same uh, uh, concerns. We need tourists. Uh, we shouldn't disappoint the tourists uh, because uh, that's uh, what um, uh, keeps our coffers full. Mm -hmm. um, but for some reason, it has um, it has. Um, still preserved uh, a very Danish view of history. Um, and I'm not sure what really to think about that because uh, uh, at one level, it's, it's, it's fun that it has this vernacular touch. But if you, if you come as an outsider and see it, I, I, my guess is that you would be a little bit puzzled by some of the, 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 the takes. There's a lot of times when you, when you, feel a little bit of well um flying the that the Danes are flying the flag in in the, the exhibition there's a lot about the North Sea Empire and King Knut and um at one point they've assembled just about all the gold they can find uh, in the entire museum in one showcase and it uh, it had it's labeled Harold Bluetooth and you think what 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 did Harold Bluetooth ever have to do with all that gold um but of course, Harold Bluetooth is the new superstar of the Viking world because he's on our our phones, um, <laughs> and so so the, the people are much more likely to at least have that name on their radar. Uh, so he just had to be there somewhere, and um, so they put him with all the gold. Um, and and <laughs> in a way, it's more fun, uh, but it's also a, a sort of strange uh, uh, reflection of. The way we 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 uh, sometimes quite bluntly put our present in the past and vice versa. Yeah, I'm so interested in this. I've actually written a bunch about this and just that you know the the way we engage with the past. And I always tell my students like the Vikings don't change, but who's looking at them and what they think about them does. And that's obviously the same with museum interpretation. I, when I came back from Denmark, I wrote a piece on my Substack called "What's the Deal with Harold Bluetooth?" Because even my husband—I mean, my husband's married to a person who you know specializes in this stuff—and even he was like walking around all these museums in Denmark, going like, "Why is Harold Bluetooth like everywhere?" <laughs> and actually, I just—it's really popular. I just saw an email. I got an email this morning from a woman who's a coordinator at, you know, some uh, Danish cultural association here in Oregon, and they're having their annual retreat next September, and they want me to come and talk. And it's, you know, so it's all these Danish, you know, people with Danish heritage. And they're like, the first thing that came to my mind is maybe I'll do a talk about Harold Bluetooth. <laughs> I was like, oh, no, yeah. why, why was yeah. that my default thought? <laughs> 
No, we could. I mean, we could go on about Herbal issues for a long time. And he's the he's he's the um, sometimes uh, sometime I think uh, somebody should write a very interesting book about him because he's a modern myth. Um, there are, of course, Viking Age stories about Herald Bluetooth, not as many as about some other kings, but um, he um, he shot to fame uh, really in the 1980s because uh, it was discovered that the um, uh, strange and mighty uh, uh, ring fortresses in Denmark uh, were built uh, in his age. And from that and from really from the introduction of dendrochronology, which could put a year to these uh, places, from that grew uh, an entirely new story, which was absent in any of the uh, sort of uh, legends and, and histories that has been um, um, uh, transmitted through history. Uh, a, a story about a great building king uh, who uh, conquered countries and um, uh, organized them in a new way. And uh, and out of that, actually, uh, um, one uh, uh, electronic engineer got the idea that uh, when he uh, devised this new uh, protocol to keep track and unite all our electronic communication, it should be called the Bluetooth. So, uh, and, and of course, by that means, this name, which starts to gain fame in Denmark in the 1980s as a result of, of well, court of archaeology, uh, gets translated into the world. And and today, if you're following Viking archaeology, you you you'll see that the 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 mass uh, of people who knows nothing about uh, Viking archaeology. Um, will still know how Bluetooth, and because you, they've heard this name, Bluetooth, and ask, so what does it mean? It's named after a Viking king. He, he gets blown out of all proportion. Uh, he's really famous for being famous now. Uh, Big Viking thing, right? They would, they would love yeah. that, I would imagine. They're really good at marketing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. I mean, he's an interesting character, uh, certainly. Uh, and and the, the, his... his, his uh, his politics around and then the, the his role in Christianizing uh, Denmark is 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 genuine and and he did buy built apparently these big ring fortresses so there's a lot of mystery uh, uh, to explore and he probably uh, was an important figure but what the the focus that you see in Denmark today is just out of proportion. Yeah, I think I'm, for my money, I'm actually kind of okay with the interpretation of, you know, as you mentioned, like with the one at the National Museum of being, you know, kind of, you know, Danish centric. I mean, you know, there are a lot of different Viking ages and CJ and I have talked about that on this podcast with various other guests as well, you know, where I think the Viking age, but there's a lot of, you know, things going on in different places and there's a lot of Viking activity in Denmark, but it's unique to Denmark. And so I think it's okay for them to interpret their own history uh, in that way. Um, but I mean, so what would, if, if you were the curator putting together the show, what would be the perfect museum exhibit about Vikings for your money? I think that the, in a modern world, um, that connectivity, the way in which you, the, the, the Viking world weaves 
so many different threats from all so, uh, of, of, of uh, places in the world, ranging from uh, uh, Central Asia, uh, the, the silver of Samarkand, to um, Middle East, the, in the Mediterranean, the Arctic Ocean, Greenland, Vinland, the way that all this get weaved into uh, our society and a culture, and still then out of that, uh, produces this ver this instantly recognizable uh, characteristic uh, uh, culture. I think that that would be at the the heart of my uh, Viking exhibition. Um, I think as citizens of the twenty first century, um, we live in a world where whatever we produce and consume gets carried around the world and gets interpreted by lots of people, and so. The Viking Age of the 21st century uh, must reflect and respond to 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 that situation, and I think that really it has a a, a, a grand potential also as a unifying uh, heritage. A few years ago, I was uh, involved in in uh, making an exhibition about the Vikings in China, of all places, and uh, it was really an interesting, an eye opening experience. Uh, because we thought at first, well, what, how, how will this be interesting to a Chinese museum uh, audience at all? But it turned out it was massively interesting. They'd heard about, well, they might not have heard about a lot about uh, Viking Age history, but uh, the Viking mythology uh, was very widely known, and and um, they had consumed some of the same television series and uh, also you know just documentaries about interesting historical uh, culture in various parts of the world so we live in a world today where the vikings are interesting in china or japan or south america but they're interesting in new ways and i think that's that's the that's so exciting really uh, and interesting, and the 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 way that they were interesting in in relatively close national states in the twentieth century um, is not the way we want to present them today. And I think there's a whiff of that perhaps in the National Museum in in Copenhagen mm -hmm. uh, in the current exhibition. Yeah, the uh, a, go ahead. Uh, I have a, a bit of a frustrating story. Is it? pertains to museums and I think there's an important discussion to have and I, I'm glad that we brought it up in this podcast because I think we're talking to the right person uh, but uh, you know to, per per your insinuation that it's all about the money you know it's a tourism thing now and so there's a concerted effort to to generate that that cash flow and so there the, the there are changes being made that are historically archaeologically questionable in order to generate that that extra cash and one of the examples that happened the few last few years was the Jorvik Viking Museum aligned themselves. Uh, I now in what capacity exactly, I don't quite recall. This is several years ago. But it was with that video game Vikings Valhalla. That just or was it Assassin's or no not Vikings Valhalla, uh, 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 Assassin's Creed. Creed. Assassin's yeah, Creed came, Valhalla. That and came out in 2020, it, so it wasn't that long ago. Yeah. It wasn't that long ago, but it was an interesting exercise in what the pitfalls of going after that money and aligning a museum which has credibility 
and people will believe what they say with something that is entirely fictional. And the frustration that I had actually came out because I was looking at going back to France to visit the, the island of Montmoutier. The local historical association there loves me. And every time I come, they're like, let's do something about the Vikings. And, <laughs> and uh, the, the chateau was putting together an exhibit on representations of history in modern graphic novels kind of thing, right? So they're already doing kind of a fictional thing. But in in speaking with her, and she didn't know who I was, she was brand new. She'd worked at some museum elsewhere, and then they hired her, whatever. And she brought up, you know, the, we want to do something with, you know, the video game, you know, the Assassin's Creed Valhalla. And I, I laughed and said, you know, that's just, a, that's pure fantasy. That's just, there's nothing historical about that. And she said, well, but but the Jorvik Viking Museum is working with them. So there has to be something. It's like, no, there that video game has zero merit. I'm sorry, it's just, it just doesn't. And the, and what happened was she believed them. <laughs> and I got stonewalled. I haven't been back. I haven't talked to anyone in that association. <laughs> like, and that, and it's just to, to communicate the power yeah. that, that established institutions have towards swaying public opinion on things and and that actually bit someone who actually knows a little bit about this i feel like uh correct mm -hmm. me if i'm wrong i mean you didn't call me crazy so i'll i'll stick with that <laughs> but, but still and then she, and i got stonewalled because i ran contrary to this this marketing scheme essentially by the Jorvik viking museum which and I, I thought if that happened to me what are the ramifications elsewhere on the on a more global scale well, but this yeah. is happening all the time, right? And I, this is my my lecture of the lab because we're at the end of a, a, a quarter here in our, our university system. And, you know, it's like Vikings in the modern era, but also how Vikings get interpreted and all of that. And for my, in my opinion, the Vikings, because of the issues with the sources, you know, at least to a fair degree, um, th that this idea of if there's gaps, we're, we're very happy to just pour ourselves into the gaps, right? You know, and so people want the Vikings that they want. And that's, that's, it's, it's as simple as that. And so, it, you know, these people are going to be like, well, no, we want this, this is the story we want, we want it to be this Valhalla story or whatever. And so uh, this is how it's going to work. And, and it, it happens all the time with Vikings. And I, and I actually don't think I, I would bet all of my money that that's never going to change. It's the it's a blessing and a curse. Uh, it's it's fantastic to have a historical uh, brand, if you uh, well, to use marketing terms, um, that that so many people relate to. Um, but it also is frustrating because so much of the way that this happens is well incompatible with <laughs> with what 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 the sources. Uh, tells us might have been the case uh, at the time, but um, the the I think the problem for museums is that they used to be you know um, independently funded institutions that uh, well had up up of um, uh, A goal of um, an educational goal, yeah. uh, basically, and a, and a uh, idealistic goal, um, uh, and were 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 funded to pursue uh, that. And increasingly, they are um, dependent on something else, 
which are is commercial income. Um, and if you are dependent on ticket sales, then you need to sell whatever story people want you to tell and not uh, what they, um, yeah, uh, the story that they need to hear. So I think it's a challenge to us as a civilization today. How do we how do we fund uh, the the real history? Um, how do we fund? Uh, in a sense, it's the same question as why how how do we get ourselves to to uh, eat healthily instead of buying uh, uh, candies when it's much cheaper than 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 proper food? Um, but but we need to find a way because if we don't, then museums will 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 defeat themselves if they're not these places where we we will drag ourselves because we think that we will experience something that is 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 uh, is is going to change our minds and that we 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 will well that we trust them to to do that. Yeah, well, it's not just the museums either. I mean, I don't know how it is there in, in Europe, but in the United States, it's the universities as well. Um, yeah. You know, and, and we've got the same kind of issue that CJ was even just mentioning about making that editorial decision with his book. It's like, well, no, don't put that in. It's actually real history, but don't put it in because you might offend somebody. And, you know, back in the day, universities used to be places where you were supposed to be challenged by the real history or real ideas. And now we're increasingly sort of not allowed to do that or encouraged not to do it. And I think this is a very dangerous path, you know, as a historian, I mean, how, how we have to come to grips with our human story. Um, you know, it, it can't be sort of cleaned up and sanitized for you all the time. I mean, what is the point of that? You know? Yeah. yeah. I like the story of the Weymouth helmet. Have you heard that one? In Weymouth, England, and they found a jawbone and the museum oh, yeah. curators thought, well, this doesn't really just sit on its own. So they invented a helmet <laughs> and put it on top to frame the jawbone. And it's an entire fiction. And so whenever I've talked a lot about, and I put this question out there, I think it's a fascinating question. There are so few helmets in the archaeological record, then it, it, mm -hmm. it begs the question, do they commonly wear helmets? Were helmets commonly available? You know, we have the Girabundu, I have a replica here, the Girabundu yeah. helmet. That's kind of the only one. And we only found it in pieces. So this actually is a fabrication of sorts because it's our best guess as to what it actually looked like. And so in Weymouth, they invented a helmet. So whenever I had this conversation online and, and people would send me pictures of the Weymouth helmet, what about this one? No, I'm sorry. That was not right. They made it up. What Gabe, remember what Gabe said, well, you, you want to be that? Well, actually, guy. <laughs> yeah. Actually, that's not really a thing. <laughs> but that's a problem for museums because then they start to lose trust. They start to lose credibility when people start to learn that, hey, in fact, this museum, that's a trusted institution, made this up. Right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, well, so I want to be mindful of your time. I know you, you have, have your evening to get to there. Um, but I mean, CJ, if you have anything, I just have one last question. Right, take it away. Um, it's kind of an existential question. Um, we're talking about, you know, these people who lived in Northern Europe, what Viking age starting some 1200 years ago. Um, why does or should any of this matter? Yeah, and that's a, that is a really good question um, and an existential one. Um, I think the point is that it does. Um, 
we have come to know about it. And unlike a lot of history that we come to know about, know about, um, we see uh, not just uh, three sort of uh, highly engaged uh, uh, students and researchers of, of 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 the period, but very many people come can can instantly recognize that there's something going on here that has a bearing on how we understand the world today. And I think that's what 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 keeps getting us back to uh, the Viking Age. There are certain parts of uh, the modern world that that um, has a, a, a clear sort of causal relationship. Uh, why did uh, obviously the Scandinavian countries develop like they did? What 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 happened in in uh, the British Isles in the Middle Ages that that uh, that made them what they are today. What happened in the in the uh, on the European continent? But I think the 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 attraction, what keeps people coming back to just this bit, is that it is so different from a lot of other history that we have. Um, there is a lot more common people in uh, our history is of the Viking Age than is usually the case for uh, ancient and medieval history. A lot of the um, protagonists are not kings and queens and bishops, but um, people who are in one sense more relatable uh, because they come from, just like many of us today, from um, all sorts of walks of, of life, but can change their own fate and change the fate of their societies by their actions. And I think that this gives us hope that we are not just um, bricks in the wall, uh, but we are. Uh, we can see that sometimes uh, history gets made by. Uh, well, if not people like ourselves, at least people who has got um, an agency uh, that's not determined by just their rank or uh, position in a in a hierarchy. And I think that 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 is really a thing that that uh, that sort of, um, permeates a lot of the modern fascination with Vikings. They're not kings and queens. They're not aristocrats in the narrow sense. They are, but they, they were people who changed um, their own world and that of uh, well, the, the wider face of, of um, the world of their time. Well said. It's the story of us. Well, yeah, it's the story of all history is the story of us, uh, but we can't relate equally well to all, uh, all all of history. And we are fascinated with different bits of it. We're fascinated with ancient Egypt or ancient Rome because of uh, its the might of its leaders and the 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 um, um, great monuments and and uh, of, of, of organization. 
by that scale, we shouldn't be fascinated with the Vikings at all because uh, even the, the grandest Viking monuments are pretty small scale by comparison with, with uh, both uh, the monuments of Rome or, or, or the pyramids in Giza. Um, but there is something different. And I think it's this accessibility and the fact that we can, we can, we can sense individual people actually having a choice and um, achieving something. And, uh, and that's not a bad lesson to take from history. Yeah, just uh, putting my writer hat on, you know, when I'm thinking about writing a good story that people will identify with. And your main character has to have two things in order to be interesting. They have to have agency and they have to take critical action. You can't have a passive, you can't, your character can't be passive because otherwise it just loses the interest. And when you think about the archetypal leanings that we all share toward, you know, our, what stories we gravitate to toward like the hero's journey, for example, yeah. the characters always have agency and critical action. And that's something that, as you just mentioned, they had both of those agency and critical action. They went out. And so perhaps why Vikings are so popular is because the story they tell is the story we all identify with, whereas other populations in history are more passive. Yeah, that's what I mean by the story of us, by by the yeah. rest of us, the, the ordinary yeah. people. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. The Vikings are just one big hero's journey. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> oh. Oh. Well, Soren, thank you so much again for being willing to spend some time with us. This has been such a pleasure. I think in all of our podcasts, and we've only had, what, I think 21 or 22 of them, but still, we've done this for a whole year now almost, and I think your name com has come up in your work more than any other person mm -hmm. in, wow. in re referencing, you know, maybe Neil Price is, is right there with you, but... Yeah. But otherwise, yeah. Um, so we are just thrilled to be able to to meet you. So thank you. Yeah, guilty admission out of everyone we've had on the show, I've been fangirling the most about having you on like the whole time. And it's just because I your work is everywhere and it's it it's it's I've leaned so heavily into it, you know, for the last since 2009. <laughs> so I was just like, starts really? This is amazing. So thank you for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I'll um, I'll uh, hope you. I've got a book coming out perhaps next year. Um, I hope you'll enjoy that. Um, but well, it's very encouraging that some people who are um, actually reading the stuff you're doing. Oh yeah, reading a lot of it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Us and my students. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. Well, thank great. You. Okay. Thank you. Real pleasure to talk to you both. Uh, thanks for the very interesting questions. Yeah, great. Yeah.